Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. We're delighted to have back Robert Bench. Robert was with us in December uh, with an episode focused on Ukraine and its energy sector. Robert, thanks very much for joining us again for a, a special update. I know you've just returned from Vienna. First of all, my, my thoughts, my condolences are with you and, and your colleagues in Ukraine, many of whom I know you've worked for for over a decade, and, and the tragic circumstances we find ourselves talking, which I think we would all agree was, is largely unexpected. You know, we think back to what we thought in December. But before we sort of go into, I know, what is a very much a, a evolving picture, yeah, my, my thoughts to you and, and how are your colleagues in Ukraine doing? Thank you for having me here and, and thank you for having this special edition. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a very religious man. I, I, you know, I, I, I pray the rosary every day. I pray and I pray for Ukraine every day. And, and I am uh, very proud of Ukraine and how they are handling the situation and how they are fighting back for their independence. And it is completely inspiring to myself and to everyone that I speak to. I, everyone that I know now is a Ukrainian, uh, which is very heartening. This is drastically different from 2013, 2014, when Russia invaded Donbass and, and annexed uh, Crimea. And, and the, the mere fact that you're having this special edition and asking about my Ukrainian colleagues, I mean, this, this, this didn't happen 10 years ago. And I'm so I'm you know, very grateful for you and to your listeners for, you know, tuning in and paying attention and caring. And, and I'm imploring upon everybody to do what they can. Uh, send money, donations of food, clothing, you know, do the uh, boycott Russian products and goods and uh, continue to support sanctions and the support of Ukraine. Uh, we all can do something. Uh, with regard to friends, uh, colleagues, I've been able to locate most, most of the men that I know, aside from some of the senior leadership of Naftagas, they have located, relocated to Lviv to continue with operations. I know that all the men that I know remain in Ukraine. N none have escaped, none are looking to escape. Uh, even those that don't have Ukrainian passports that are Americans, British, Irish, they're remaining in Ukraine to fight for Ukraine. I have a very dear uh, colleague from many years, a reporter uh, who's in his 60s and he's staying to fight for Ukraine. So it's extremely heartening uh, as to the response that Ukraine and, Ukra and non-Ukrainians are providing the, uh, the country. I've, again, I've been able to locate most, uh, most if not all are fighting. There are three or four colleagues, friends that I can't locate. I have not been able to get in touch with them on any type of uh, social, you know, signal or WhatsApp or Facebook. So I'm, 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 I'm concerned for them because they are absolutely of the type that would be running around Kiev or Kharkiv 
throwing Molotov cocktails. I was on, I was at the Maidan in 2014 and, and they were um, throwing Molotov cocktails at uh, the, the government forces that were suppressing uh, Ukraine uh, when the Maidan happened. And I, I, and I posted a picture of uh, a, a crate full of Molotov cocktails from 2014 trying to show to people how serious Ukraine is to fight oppression, to fight for their democracy. Uh, they were fighting an oppressive, non-democratic, pro-Russian president in 2013, 2014, Yanukovych, who ultimately fled to Ukraine. And you can just imagine their feelings toward Russian troops and President Putin, this is, this will, this, they, they, they will not give up. I remember one of the striking things you said on our podcast in December was how a decade ago, there wasn't really a, a Ukrainian national pride. I think that's exploded on the, on the world scene. And it's just incredibly devastating news. This seems to have really come as a surprise. I mean, at what point did Ukrainians, your colleagues, start thinking this might actually happen? Not until it happened. And it happened rapidly. It happened with uh, Putin coming on and saying that he was recognizing the independence of the breakaway of the separatist areas uh, of Lugansk and Donetsk. And the concern was that they would break through the demarcation line and seize the entire oblast themselves, the Lugansk and Donetsk oblast attempt to uh, connect that with Mariupol, which is a which uh, remains a free city of Ukraine, attach all of that to Crimea and form you know the land bridge. That's what many Ukrainians that I deal with, speak with, believed was the end game. There was significant surprise by Ukrainians that they uh, immediately started shelling uh, or started approaching toward Kyiv. Uh, there was little less surprise with regard to Kharkiv. You know, they tried to uh, they tried to separate they tried to support a separatist movement in Kharkiv back in 2013, 2014, and that was. Uh, very rapidly suppressed, but the the overall assault on Kiev, Kharkiv has come as a a real surprise to uh, the Ukrainians that that I work with and 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 still speak with to this day. I mean, they didn't believe that Putin would go to this extreme. So now the good news for Ukraine is is tactically they have been attacking from multiple locations the, the logistics has broken down pretty significantly uh there has not been massive significant material bombing of kiev kharkiv uh and uh, lviv other major cities uh there has been shelling there has been absolutely uh, assaults on those on those areas. There are people dying every day. Uh, but the good fortune at this point is 
it 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 could be much much worse than it hasn't been, and that, and largely due to uh, tactical errors made by Russia, and mo- most importantly, the 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 bravery and the steadfastness of the Ukrainian military. This is not the Belarusian military. This is not a weak military. This is a battle proven military that is performing extremely well, very gallantly, very bravely. I mean, I, we all see everyday pictures on Instagram, Facebook, the news of normal people, you know, people as old and fat as myself running around with a Molotov cocktail, throwing it at a tank, you know, or, you know, we've seen, we've all seen that meme of the of the old woman giving Russian sh- uh, soldiers sunflowers. So when their dead sunflowers will grow, I mean, people need to understand that this is not over ever. Not until I think for me, that this is the end of Putin, not the end of Ukraine. Incredible bravery, as you say. And I think pictures and deeds that are moving us around the world. Um, our episode zoomed in by the nature of this podcast on the energy sector in Ukraine and its consequences for the world. What is the situation right now in Ukraine? The lights are still on, gas still flowing. The, those companies that are, you know, that you work with to source gas, you know, the utilities, what, what's the, the current situation? Ten years of, of warfare, um, everyone in the country is battle-hardened. And the energy sector is performing. Co- uh, companies like the DF Group, Fertosh, who owns ammonia and fertilizer plants, have shut all of those plants down uh, so as they cannot be weaponized. They continue to trade gas. Uh, Naphtha Gas uh, continues to produce gas. Private producers continue to produce gas. The electricity is still on for the most part in, in, in all of Ukraine. So, you know, there goes credit to companies like DTEC, which uh, is the largest electricity, one of the largest electricity providers in the country. There is no widespread shutdown of, uh, of the electrical or power grid, tra- gas transit, uh, the, 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 I'm going to mispronounce Sergey's last name, but Sergey Makagin, who whom runs uh, the gas transit system of Ukraine, continues to transit gas every day. He posts on Facebook or LinkedIn, uh, "Keep calm and transit gas." And it's a goofy comment, but it's true. I mean, that's uh, again. I've spoken with Yuri Vertrenko, who's a, a wonderful man, ex- extremely brave. He's there in Ukraine leading NAFTA gas, and I'm extremely proud of him and and everyone in the energy sector. There, there has been no material failure of the energy infrastructure uh, within, within Ukraine to this point. Yeah, um, I guess we're recording for those listeners March 1st. You know, it seems uh, this is obviously a rapidly evolving situation. One of the responses that I think has also taken the world by surprise is the unifying of the West in particular, but other countries around the world in sanctions, hard-hitting sanctions, um, you know, SWIFT, the Russian Central Bank. There is a big carve-out for energy in that at the moment. You know, what is going on as it relates to 
importing Russian gas into Ukraine? What's going on? You know, what's your broader sense of the of the immediate impacts on energy and what it what it relates to Europe and beyond? Well, Russian gas is transiting through Ukraine. Uh, I'm not. I don't. I don't know how that gas is being paid for. Uh, Gazprom, as we all know, is under sanctions. And people are announcing that they will no longer receive Russian gas or oil, for that matter. But that that is a that is an actual fact that Russian gas is still transiting through the the, the gas transit system. Uh, again, I don't know how how that how that gas is being paid for because Russia has been removed from SWIFT and the the uh, central bank has been sanctioned. From a near term standpoint, yes, gas still flows. Uh, from a mid to a long term standpoint, I believe that that will as soon as there is enough alternative supply, and or we enter the warmer months that will cease. You know, if I, if I think back to our discussion in December and the discussions that we had around leading up to recording, there was this general sense that there was obviously a desire from Russia to legitimize, and this isn't the place to get into politics, but to legitimize Crimea and the, the eastern regions that they uh, were occupying, or at least you know, the separatist regions. And a lot of this stemmed around Nord Stream 2, and leverage to make sure that happened. We now stand, you know, uh, just a short couple of months later, and Nord Stream 2 seems to be, well, certainly stopped right now, and, and it seems like that might be a, a permanent reality. That fundamentally changes the, the, I guess, the Russian calculus about, you know, their energy earnings, but in particular what it means for Western Europe and how they're going to then fund the shortfall that Ukraine has been facing for the last few months, now the whole of Europe faces that shortfall in natural gas. The delivery of 50 BCM of gas to uh, Europe is extremely difficult near term. Uh, you know, Spain and the UK uh, cannot provide enough b- because they have LNG capacity. They 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 cannot provide enough LNG. Uh, for broader Europe, uh, the Baltics, Ukraine, factually Poland. Actually, Poland is the only country that that called this right on right on the nose. You know, Poland had a, I don't recall what the name of the strategy was, but basically they wanted to be completely off the Russian power grid by. 2022, 2023, somewhere in that number, in that time frame, zero gas coming from, uh, coming from uh, Russia. Ukraine, on the other hand, uh, was always proud to say that we don't buy uh, Russian gas, but that was completely false. They were buying a significant amount of gas uh, from Europe that was Russian gas. I mean, it was just being uh, it was just reverse flowing back into the country. Ukraine also failed miserably to uh, develop its own internal resources. It's had since 2013, 2014 to attract significant investment into the energy sector. Uh, it had all that time to, at the NAFTA gas level to increase reserves and in production, and it failed. 
and it is absolutely dealing with that today. I mean, it, it, it is more dependent uh, on Russia and or outside sources of gas than it has ever than it has ever been in my lifetime, uh, which is, you know, pretty long. Uh, the Baltics, the countries that I see faring okay because of the availability of, of US LNG is, you know, you know the, the smaller countries, you know, the Baltics should be okay. They have a, a terminal that's large enough. They can install an FRSU to bring in uh, gas supplies. There is a pipeline that's being completed, I believe, in July of this year, which would allow them to not only uh, bring LNG from the United States to the Baltics, but pipe it to Poland. Uh, and I think that's about a BCM or two of gas that can come to uh, Poland and that can be used in Poland and or resold to to Germany. So you and then you have the you have very large LNG terminals in uh, Belgium and Netherlands, of course. Uh, the question is, where is the LNG coming from? Uh, U, U.S. LNG firms are at 80, 90 percent capacity. So, again, Germany is not going to be saved by U.S. LNG. What is likely to now happen in is uh, the United States, from a bureaucratic standpoint, allowing additional LNG terminals to be built. So some of the firms that uh, were waiting on some approvals from FERC likely would would see an easier time of that uh, being approved if they're able to get contracts for supply to LNG. But you'll recall most of the LNG companies historically, as of today, I haven't spoken to Tellurian and Commonwealth and some of these other LNG firms that aren't built and are looking for contracts, their focus has not been on Europe. It's been on Asia. My belief is they're looking at Europe, but they're still probably primarily focused on on Asia uh, from a long-term standpoint to get their LNG terminals built. So uh, from a mid to a long-term standpoint, yes, there is some LNG you probably can add another, you know, seven to 10 BCM of US LNG with current capacity to, we'll just call it Europe right now, Belgium, Netherlands, you know, the, the Clapadia terminal in, in the Baltics. Uh, Poland has, has and is increasing. After that, it's a pretty hard slog for uh for for Europe with regard to energy supply gas prices are going to remain extremely high see so i guess some of it's going to you know what you're talking about there is you know what policies does the us administration put in place what policies does europe put in place to support not being beholden to russian energy right and i guess a lot of that also depends on the eventual outcome or the near term outcome of of what's going on in ukraine there's going to be a lot of pressure put on countries to not support Russia, which means even 
pariahs such as Iran would have an opportunity to supply Europe with gas. Turkmenistan, if there's a, an opportunity with uh, with the Turks to get control of the of the Turkmen supply of of of, of gas, uh, getting control of that pipeline system that the Russians uh, have control over. I mean, it's it, it, in that standpoint. Uh, it's absolutely a new world order and that's from that regard. If this government is overthrown and a puppet Russian government is put in place, clearly that government will be, and Ukraine will be under sanctions. The only operational Ukraine is a free and democratic Ukraine. And I don't see the opportunity for uh, a new regime in Ukraine having the opportunity to transit a lot of Russian gas into Europe. I, I don't. I don't see that scenario happening. The largest gas producers are Canada, the United States. You know the Mozambique. You know we all know the list, and they're going to be given priority to, to be able to, to provide gas to. Uh, to, to Europe. I mean, at this point, the Canadians should be allowing the LNG terminals to, that they've put on hold for many, many years to become operational because there's a significant amount of gas clearly in Canada that could be transited rather rapidly to, uh, to Europe if they so chose. It's striking, as you say, it will be, at least unless this thing ends very quickly and there are, you know, sufficient consequences, it would be a, a striking new world order, right, in terms of that geopolitical map as it relates to energy, you know, and I think that uh, the events are certainly bringing coalitions around that probably weren't there just a week ago. What, I, and you're talking to Ukrainians every day, all of us uh, around the world who've had international careers have friends and um, relations who are intimately being affected by this. What right now do people need? What do you you know? What are your 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 connects there saying? What are they trying to do? You know, what's the what's the immediate sort of actions that you've been taking that you and the needs that you see there and on the border? I I got a text message from uh, Nafta Gas asking for money, food, clothing, shelter, evacuation routes. Um, and this was not for Nafta Gas. This was, the, you know, came from a, a Nafta Gas executive saying, "This is what we need, and any help that you can provide uh, for Ukraine, not for Nafta Gas." I want to make that very clear. My response, and so what I have done is I've gone to my church, and I've asked the uh, the diocese to to. Uh, basically have a, a donation for Ukraine. Their response was, we are the Catholic Church. We are everywhere. You tell us who to contact, where we should be sending supplies, and we'll start doing that. Uh, I have put him in contact with, uh, I have put them in contact with um, with the, uh, the, the council here in, uh, here in Houston, as well as with Nafta Gas. Mostly, I'm heartened to hear that um, people that had had means, and I don't mean wealth, but just give the two feet in a car, 
were able to get to Lviv, which seems to be, uh, the, you know, the, the, one of the anything west of Kiev seems to be pretty safe. And again, I'm quite upset about friends and colleagues that I've worked with for many years that are, you know, my age and older that are fighting. I'm I'm extremely proud of them, but it's also upsetting because I, you know, I I don't want them to die. What, if anything, can you recommend to listeners how they can support Ukraine or even to support the, the women and children who are, you know, at the moment, uh, if not over the border, on harrowing, long, difficult journeys to get there? There is a business group called the U.S.-Ukraine Business Council. U.S.-Ukraine Business Council. It's a, a, a it's a it's a lobbying organization for U.S. businesses that are operating within Ukraine. Five six hundred members. It's been in existence for forever. It's run by an individual by the name of Morgan Williams. You can Google his name. You can Google their website. They have a package of how to provide aid. Uh, to Ukraine and it's it's based they send you an email and it has links to everything if people want to email me i have this email it has every link it even includes uh you know charities to donate where to donate uh instagram accounts to follow posters to print to support ukraine uh, it has everything you could you could possibly want and it's legitimate. You're not giving to the XYZ Support Ukraine Incorpor- Incorporated that was founded yesterday. And you find out two years from now that it's money going to some idiot in North Korea, you know. So, uh, you know, if I'm, I'm, please Google Morgan, U.S. Ukraine Business Council. People can email me. They can contact you. I can send you the email. There's all sorts of ways of getting this information out there if people want to be supportive yeah absolutely um i'll put an email in the in the show notes where people can email us and i'll forward it on to you um and then you can email them directly um you know i i imagine this has been what i know it has been for you an absolutely tragic and harrowing last um you know few days that's nothing compared i know to what your uh your colleagues your friends the people you spent a long time with the people of Ukraine are going through um, right now. I, I think, uh, you know, although this is a special episode, I think it's it's really insightful to understand how this could fundamentally change the energy flows in Europe and beyond. On behalf of my colleagues and me, I, you know, I, we can only wish safety and, and health and security to all those people there who are being tragically affected by this right now. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, this is... Again, to, to, to refocus for your listeners, um, I am getting calls daily from U.S. producers that want to grab the margin in Europe. I'm getting calls from purchasers in Europe as to how to directly access the U.S. gas market. They, the, you know, trading companies, all due respect, to colleagues here on the on the line, the the, the trading companies of the world uh, aren't going to be able to to provide the long term gas supply contracts that 
sellers here in the U.S. and the purchasers in Europe are are looking for. I mean, this is this is not a spot trade a car of of LNG for a month or two or three. I, you know, I have industrial companies in Europe calling me wanting access to large gas producers here in the United States to structure a transaction. And I think that I'm going to end up spending the rest of my year putting these types of transactions together. And then ultimately, we hopefully will be able to allow some of these LNG terminals that have not had approval to get built, getting approval to get built because they have the contracts uh, behind them. So that's from a, from a, to, to crystallize and to refocus on the, you know, to all due respect to your listeners and, you know, they're not here to have a Slava Ukraine session. They're here to, okay, what's the opportunity? That's the opportunity. That's, that's, that's the new world order. It's not investing in solar and renewables because that, that's not going to provide a solution over the next five years, the next 20 years. Absolutely. If you have 20, 30 year money, Absolutely. I, but we're not talking the next 20 years. We're talking the next three to 10. And solar, wind, and hydro are not going to resolve the Ukrainian, the, sorry, the uh, European, the, the now European energy crisis that we are entering. Well, and as we are seeing just in the last couple of days, major oil companies pulling out of investments, you know, in the East, in, in Russia, in Sakhalin, for Shell, et cetera. So there is a refocusing of of all of those organizations and participants onto just this problem, right? You know, how else is Europe going to get that natural gas? We'll put the links in the show notes. Thank you very much for coming back on. And I appreciate you, uh, your willingness to, to share information about how people can best support Ukraine. Once again, as unfathomable as this is, is and is becoming, you know, our thoughts are very much with the people of Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services, and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.